Well, as you can see on the screen, Stand Fast is the name of this morning's sermon, the title. Well, such a title, at first glance, I think sounds, or can sound, a little bit oxymoronic, don't you think? Stand fast. How do you stand fast? I don't know about you, but the image that I get in my head is one of a statue trying to beat Usain Bolt's 100-meter world record. But, as I'm sure most of you know, uh, that is not all fast means. I deliberately chose uh, those words because I think they encapsulate the heart of this passage that we see uh, in, our, in verse 12. As I'm sure you're aware, fast can also mean to be attached or or fixed to something uh, so that it is secure and so that it doesn't move, so it's in place. Uh, That's why uh, if you're a bit of a handy person, you have things called fastenings, screws and bolts and things like that. You use those to ensure that something is secured and remains in place. And the word steadfast in our passage means to stand your ground, to be resolute and to persevere. And so in that sense, the image of a statue, uh, even though we're not wanting to imagine it finishing a a really race in record time, it's actually kind of a good image. Its purpose is to hold its ground, its purpose is to stick around, its purpose is to remain even when uh, the, the elements beat down upon it, whether that's wind, whether that's rain, hail, protesters, stat- statues remain standing fast. And so it is, as James tells us, also for the one who loves the Lord. The one who loves God must remain steadfast. That's what he says in verse 12. And hence, the title, Stand Fast, is really just another way of saying, Remain Steadfast. So throughout this morning, as I say both of those things, they are essentially saying the same thing. Stand Fast, one in in a different kind of imperative. And that's the point of today's passage. What James wants his readers to grasp here, the Jewish Christians who were the immediate recipients of this letter, scattered throughout the world, but also to every Christian who has read this letter in the 2,000 years since it was written. For all who read it, he is calling every Christian to the life of steadfast perseverance. Or in other words, one where Christians stand fast. You may have seen the question uh, as you came in, how do we as Christians stand fast under trial? How do we stand fast under trial? When the, when the elements beat down upon you, when it feels like life is hurling giant hailstones of hurt at you, when trials become so great that all you want to do is just crumble in a heap, how can you stand fast? Let's turn to God's wisdom written through James in the first century to answer that question. I think James answers it with three main points, which will be my points also this morning, and they can be stated in one sentence. Remain steadfast, point one, because God is good, point two, 
and he is steadfast towards you. Point three. If you are taking notes, those will come back up. But those are our points for this morning. So with our Bibles open, with our notebooks, with our hearts ready, let's explore this passage together. I'm beginning at verse 12. Well, the first point remains steadfast at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Which God has promised to those who love him. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. If, if our kids were in one more week, they were in with us for the last couple of weeks, uh, I would have asked my own if that phrase sounded familiar to them. And because we as a family, uh, about a year ago, memorized Psalm 1, and the opening is exactly the same. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. Now, to be clear, uh, James isn't just talking about males here. So uh, all the uh, females in the room, ladies, this applies to you also. Uh, the, the term that he uses is one to refer to a generic person right here. Another thing to point out about James is that he is so clearly steeped in Old Testament wisdom literature. Uh, as we work our way through this book over the coming weeks, you will notice, and I will hopefully point out as often as I can, different languages and phrases that sound very similar to the kind of uh, wisdom that we hear in the Old Testament. But you know, James is not just familiar with the Old Testament. He's actually also very familiar with Jesus. And we see that also very clearly in this verse. Because it was Jesus, after all, who said in Matthew 5.11 that those who remain steadfast were blessed. Sounds a lot like what James has just said. James here gives us one of the reasons why such a person can consider remaining steadfast under trial. Trials meaning sufferings, difficult times, a blessing. He says, when they have stood the test, or to put it another way, when they have been proven to be genuine, they will receive the crown of life. Roger mentioned last week how verse 12 is a continuation of verses 2 to 4. And I think James has done this intentionally to show how what has come before and what he is about to say next is related to this idea. Have a look with me at if, verses 3 to 4. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing." Do you notice how the, the trials, the test, our faith? And those trials and the, those tests in turn produce steadfastness. And so what we need to grow in as we endure the test, as we endure the trials, is steadfastness. And the purpose of that is that we may be perfect and complete. I think in verse 12, James elaborates on and makes clearer what he said earlier. In our striving to remain steadfast, there is a hope not just of, of growing in Christian maturity in this life, that that is certainly what is occurring as, as steadfast is produced in us, but we are also receiving the perfection of that work 
in the next life. This is the crown of life that James says he will, we will receive as we stand and st- stand the test and persevere to its completion. The crown of life is eternal life, perfected life, completed life. Life as it is without sin, without corruption. It is life in and with God. And so this crown of life that, that James is talking about here in verse 12 is the final reward at the end of a life that has remained steadfast in love for God. We read about crowns uh, as rewards a few times in the New Testament. Paul speaks of receiving a crown when the Christian has run the race and finished it. And John also uses the image in Revelation 2, verse 10. These biblical authors, Peter, uh, Paul, James, John, they talk about the same reward, the crown of life, using different imagery, but they are all making the same point. Whether it's trials of many kinds, whether it's pressing on to finish the race, whether it's, it means being thrown into prison, as John states here in Revelation, whether it's even facing death as a martyr. This is the Christian life. There is no other way to live it. So, it's worth asking at this point, are you standing fast? Are you persevering? Are you enduring? Are you staying true and faithful to God, even though things might be hard? What do you find hardest about remaining steadfast in your faith? What do you find most difficult about it? For some, it's the simple fact that trials, they are just difficult. I mean, like, nobody wakes up in the morning and and rubs their hands together and, and then says, now, let's see how much more stress and suffering I can squeeze into my calendar. I, I mean, if you do... God bless you. I haven't yet seen a self-help book titled How to Increase Your Stress and Your Chances of Going to an Early Grave hit the New York Times bestseller list, right? As a matter of fact, I tried to search for that and all I got were results about how to deal with stress, how to lower it. Trials don't make us feel great. Suffering is not something we enjoy and therefore we naturally avoid them and we do whatever we can to have less of them, right? There is a naturalness to that. There is an understanding to that. Especially as Christians, we recognize that this world is not the way it ought to be. Now, I'm not suggesting that as Christians, the right and the godly thing for us to do is to necessarily stop that impulse. That if trials come our way, we should just say, yeah, bring it on, baby, and let me just have more of it. I'll take it. Come on, I can handle whatever you throw at me. How a Christian responds to various trials and whether we seek to avoid some trials or whether we seek to endure others will be different due to a range of factors. There are lots of things to take into consideration when thinking about that. There's no one-size-fits-all response to, to each different trial that we come across. And so it's not necessarily a sin for a Christian to seek relief from trials. After all, if, if it were, then all of us would be guilty of that. 
We do exactly that when we uh, take a Panadol or when we go to the hospital, right? When you do that, you are seeking to escape that trial. Or perhaps when you go to the dentist, even though I'm sure for most people, it's, that's kind of a lose-lose. You know, you're, you're sort of substituting one for another. What I want to exhort us all to this morning is what James exhorts us to. Regardless of whether or not you have control over the severity or the amount of trials that you experience in life, stand fast in the ones that you are. Knowing that you are and that you will be greatly blessed for doing so. For others of us, the reason we find it hard to stand fast under trial is because it doesn't line up with our expectations of life or our expectations of God. One of the key reasons why we in the West are so confused about so many things in life is because we just expect that life shouldn't have, or at the very least should have a lot less of the kinds of sufferings that we actually do experience. And so we seek out the kind of life that has, that has less or none. That's why the phrase, the path of least resistance exists. And as Christians, we can often subtly take that view about life on board and then give it a uniquely Christian twist. Just think about this for a second. How often in a moment of great trial do you think to yourself, God, why are you doing this to me? Now, there's nothing necessarily wrong with asking that question. But consider the assumption that more often than not lies behind it. God, this shouldn't be happening to me. And if you were truly good, if you really were good and you, and you say that to me and you, and you promise that to me, I can't see any good reason why this should be happening to me right now. One of the reasons we struggle to remain steadfast under trial as Christians is because we're sometimes lured into the kind of thinking that believes the own, that only the things that we like from God are the good things. And everything else that comes from God, we have to just tolerate. Because, well, you know, God's sovereign and He'll give us a crown of life at the end, so it'll all work out and fine. In the midst of your trials, do you believe that God has told you to stand fast because He is good? Or do you find your motivation waning because you think it's probably not worth it if the only reward is something that I just can't touch in this life, that I just can't reach? It's just this, uh, I don't know if it's worth it. Do you believe that God is good even in the midst of that? That brings us to point two. Because God is good. Why remain steadfast? 
Why stand fast under trial? Because God is good. If you can't trust a person who is promising you a reward, then you don't really have much motivation to go through with what they're asking you to do, do you? The reason most people don't try their luck on those skill testers that you find in the shops or at time zone, you know what I'm talking about, the ones with the soft toys or the bags of lollies or whatever with the claw that comes along, the claw, you know, that comes around and, you know, you know what I mean? The reason most people don't waste their money on those is because they know that that game is rigged. It is set up to be almost impossible to win. At a work function once, I had friends like, I mean, we, we, got, we had credit to just blow anyway. So they, they just, they went at it at this one and they, you know, they were doing all sorts of things to try. I don't know how many attempts, but they just failed. Did not get that iPhone or whatever it was that was in there. Maybe you feel that way about God. Maybe you feel like he's set up the game by telling us to stand fast under trial promising us a crown of life but then puts a whole bunch of traps and hardship in our path and then just sits back and laughs gleefully as we struggle through them in pain. Friends, God has not rigged the game. He doesn't promise a reward to those who love Him and then set you up to fail. He doesn't tell you that if you remain steadfast, you'll receive the crown of life and then proceeds to make it almost impossible for you to remain steadfast. And that's what James wants us to grasp in the rest of this next set of verses. Let's read from verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Just in case you are tempted to believe that God is the one who tempts you, James makes it unmistakably clear that that is not the case. You see, one temptation that uh, when you are in the midst of trial and are failing to stand fast would be to begin to blame God for those temptations. That's exactly what Adam did. God, the, the woman that you gave me. And so James wants us to make sure that we have no grounds for doing that at all. An apocryphal book, The Wisdom of Sirach, which would have been known to James, says something similar. Do not say, it was the Lord's doing that I fell away, for he does not do what he hates. Do not say, it was he who led me astray, for he has no need of the sinful. James alludes to an idea that rabbis called the evil tendency within people. That is, our desires can be so easily lured and hooked by sin. And he wants, to under, wants us to understand 
that the source of such temptation and the source of such evil is not God at all. And he asserts very clearly that this is because God himself cannot even be tempted by evil. And the reason that he can't is because he is good. His goodness is is so complete and pure and perfect that there is not the slightest hint of evil in him, nor is there even the slightest hint of him being able to be tempted by evil. Now, for some of us, this might raise some questions, right? After all, wasn't Jesus tempted in the wilderness by Satan? The most straightforward answer to that is that When the Gospels call it temptation, they're not saying that Jesus for a moment actually considered the devil's temptations. And this is plainly seen in the fact that Jesus responds each time immediately with a quote from Scripture. In the narrative of these temptations, we see the devil attempting to tempt Jesus, not Jesus actually being lured by those temptations. But perhaps you might struggle with other parts of Scripture. For example, in the first verses of 2 Samuel 24 and 1 Chronicles 21, we see two accounts of the same act of temptation of King David, but in these verses, we have two different agents doing the the tempting. In Samuel, the Bible says it was God who incited David to number Israel, and in Chronicles, it says it was Satan. Well, who was it? If you listen to some people who have deconstructed their Christian faith, they will tell you that this is an example of where later editors of the Bible realized that, oh, this is a mistake, and so we need to change it. And therefore, because of that, they say, well, the Bible cannot be fully trusted as the Word of God, which has no error, but it is merely a human book written by men who sometimes maybe just tapped into God and who He was. And we can read it for that, in, in that way with that kind of thinking. Aside from the fact that such a view is no longer Christianity, it also fails to appreciate the consistent teaching of Scripture. What we see in these verses is not an embarrassing mistake that somehow needs to be smoothed over. No, what we see is God's sovereignty in His judgment on David, which is sometimes brought about through secondary agents. In this case, that is Satan. And those agents are themselves evil. The secondary agent is the evil one, and the one who tempts, not God. There are lots of complexities around that, that I'm sure you have questions about. But let me encourage you to park them for now or write them down so that we can stick with James. And you're welcome to ask our elders during question time, who will be more than happy to answer your questions. But see, the reason I mention all of that to you is so that you know that what James is saying here in his letter is not inconsistent with the rest of Scripture. There may be some aspects of it that are difficult for us to understand or that we need to spend some more time wrestling with, but James is here not saying anything that contradicts the rest of the Bible. God is good and He is perfect in His goodness. The evil that we are tempted to engage in, the desires which, when joined with forbidden temptation, gives birth to sin and lead to death, 
That comes from within. That comes from the enemy. None of that comes from God. Did you notice the image that he's using here? Where is it? Verse 15. There you go. Did you notice when, when, when desire has conceived and then gives birth to sin? If those ideas are uh, unfamiliar to you, ask your parents or talk to me. Here, I think the reason James is using that language is because of another example of his familiarity with the wisdom literature. In the book of Proverbs, there is a character known as the forbidden woman. And she lures and entices men away from wisdom. And so we read in Proverbs, uh, as one example, 5, verses 3 to 5. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She is like a woman of the night, seeking to seduce and corrupt faithful men. And again, the imagery applies also to women. The things she says sound great, they sound sweet, but in reality, her words lead to death. The temptation of sin entices us all. And so what must we do when we're tempted with sin? What the writer of Proverbs tells us to do in verse 8. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. Brothers and sisters, stay far away from temptation. Stand fast in the land of the living. Remain steadfast in the land of the righteous. Do not even go near her house. Do not even entertain her sweet, honey-filled words. Tell me, which desires lure you into temptation? You see, each of us struggle with different temptations to sin. For some, the sin of laziness is a greater temptation than that of lust. For others, the sin of uh, gossip is a greater temptation than the sin of gluttony. In every case, there are desires within us that bring about such temptations to sin. There may be good or there may be bad desires or there may be even a mixture of both that lead to this temptation. The person who is prone to laziness perhaps actually just might have a better appreciation for rest than the person who is more prone to overwork. One tempted to lust has sexual desires that are given by God, but then seeks to enjoy them in a context that is outside of his design of monogamous heterosexual marriage. The one who gossips perhaps might even be genuinely concerned for other people yet easily seeks more information and detail than is necessary. 
the glutton enjoys God's good gift of food, just sometimes a bit much. When are you most tempted to taste forbidden fruit? Brothers and sisters, think about this. It is no good and it is of no value to turn a blind eye to your temptations. Temptation is not warded off and sin is not resisted by you minimizing the last time you actually succumbed to that temptation. To invoke God's grace and to say that He forgives you as an excuse to keep putting yourself in situations where you will be lured and enticed by sin is only increasing the odds of you crumbling and dying instead of standing fast. God does not want that for you. That is why He never tempts you with evil. What He always desires for you is your good. And that brings us to our next verses. Let's read from verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived into thinking that God would or even could tempt you. Why? Because He is the Father of lights. He's the father of all good things. The one who promised a reward of the crown of life to you. Do not be deceived into thinking that God is a miser or stingy or does not have your good at heart. You might remember from, from last week how James instructed his readers to ask God for wisdom. Well, here he reminds us that we can ask and we can trust that He will give wisdom and every other good and perfect gift because all such good and perfect gifts come from Him, from above. And that means we can ask for His strength and His Spirit to help us remain steadfast and to resist sin and to resist temptation. Let me ask you an important question in all this. Do you believe that God is good toward you in everything? Do you believe that God is good toward you in everything? One of the reasons we struggle with the idea of counting trials as pure joy or seeing the crown of life as a worthwhile reward for standing fast through trials it's because sometimes, oftentimes, it feels to us like a cruel joke of Almighty God. And that He dangles that eternal life carrot in front of us to satisfy His ego and for the sake of His enjoyment. Too often it seems to us like the trials that we are going through have no good purpose. 
And that all God is doing is asking us to grit our teeth and go through hell on earth so that we can just eventually get to heaven. One of my friends from the US, a guy who did the internship at Capitol Hill Baptist Church with me, he was telling me recently about his own shift in thinking around this kind of thing. He has struggled in his life at various times with depression and even suicidal thoughts, ideation. And he has at different points felt like his trials have been something that he just needed to bear. Meaning, you know, there was always a but. These trials are difficult, but God is good. Of course, that's a true statement. But more often than not, when we say it, what we mean is that God's goodness cannot be located in the trials themselves. But that His goodness is found in Him pulling us out of them or finally giving us the reward when we get through them. It's like we think that God is is sorry for putting us through those trials, but hey, you know, it it works out all in the end. (laughs) And what my friend was reflecting on was the fact that God's goodness is present even in the midst of the trials, even in his sovereignty over the evil that has brought them about. Such trials, as James says in verses 2 to 4, produce steadfastness, which leads to completeness. God is not tempting you with evil things. He does not permit them so that you can pass the test and then just get the good thing. No, the end point of every Christian's life and the highest desire of the follower of Christ is that we would be like Him. Therefore, our eternal lives, the the very crown that we will receive, will be the perfection and will be the completion of what we are currently striving towards in the here and now. And yes, that includes the steadfastness that is being produced in our lives through the trials that we experience. Our reward will not only be eternal life, it will not only be heaven and great stuff and it's all wonderful and fantastic, but perfected eternal life, life without any evil desires, life without any temptation to sin. Life that is resolutely sure of God's goodness and trusts Him without even a lick of doubt, that is what God is doing in the midst of your trials. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God in His goodness is good towards you, even in the midst of it, because He is shaping you into what every Christian longs to be, like Christ? Brothers and sisters, one of the ways we stand fast under trial is by remembering that even in it, He is good. Perhaps you need a trusted brother or sister to walk with you through it, to pray with you, to remind you of his goodness.
Perhaps you need help to see the ways in which God is good to you in the midst of it. Brothers and sisters, He is good. But perhaps you, like me, sometimes find that hard to believe. And that's why we need James's reminder in these last verses. And that brings us to our final point. <laughs> Still not prepared. He is steadfast towards you. Let's read verse 17 again. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. With whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God does not change. When I say that God is steadfast towards you, what I mean is that He is perfectly steadfast towards you. He has not changed. He does not change. He will not change. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. The statement is so true that God put it on the lips of prophets that lived thousands of years before James. Such as in Malachi 3.6. For I, the Lord, do not change. It's so true that even in the 2,000 years since James actually penned this letter, Christians continue to say the same thing. And they still say it today. Over the years, Christians have come to call this the doctrine of God's immutability. You might think the word mutability has something to do with the mute button on your remote control, but uh, actually, mutability simply means able or likely to change. And so therefore, immutable means not able to or likely to change. This is the idea, and even the verse from which lyrics of the lyrics of verse 1 in the song we sang earlier, Great is thy faithfulness, draw their inspiration from. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not, thy compassions they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Once again, there are implications for this, especially when we read in Scripture of times when God changed His mind. And there are long answers to that question, but the short one is that Scripture sometimes conveys divine truth in human language that we can understand. That's also why the Bible can say that God is spirit and invisible and then talk about His hand or His eyes or His uh, arm. God is immutable. And guess what? That is good news. Do you know why? Because it means that when he says that he is always good and that there is no evil in him and that he is promising a crown of life to those who love him, 
then you can trust that. He's not a carnival games operator. He's not a dodgy salesperson. He is who he is and will be for all eternity. Sure, you might have some questions about how that works or you know, what the evidence is of that truth, but if you come to accept it, then you can depend on it. This is why my friend that I mentioned earlier can reflect on his trials the way that he has. Because he's recognized that even if he can't see how God could possibly be good to him in the midst of his struggles, he can trust that he has always been good to him and that he is still good to him and that he will forever be good to him. Even if that goodness, as far as he can see, is blocked by a big black cloud, he knows that is true. You can depend on the fact that when God says he has promised the crown of life to those who love him, he will follow through. But perhaps you're thinking to yourself, well, that's great. Uh, It's great that God doesn't change, but I'm the one who keeps changing. How can I have any confidence that I am going to remain steadfast under trial? That sounds like a test. How on earth do I know I'm going to pass the test? That's where verse 18 comes in. Let's read. Of his own will, he... He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The very fact that God, through James, can call you to stand fast is not because there is something special about you. It's not because you as a Christian somehow have more durability than the average person. That somehow you're more motivated and more intrinsically motivated than anybody else. And God knows that you are, and so that's why He called you to be a Christian, and that's why He knows you're going to be able to stand the test of time. No, the reason God can call you to that is because He is the one who has brought you forth in the first place. Another way of of phrasing that is that He has given you spiritual birth. By his own will. This is the reason as Christians we talk about regeneration, which is just another word for being born again. That is what James is referring to in this verse. And Jesus talks about exactly this in John 3. Other biblical authors, they use the same language, like Peter, who who says basically the same thing as James here in 1 Peter 2.23. The Bible says that those who know God are the ones who have been born again, who have been regenerated, who have been brought forth by the will of God. And how is it that God, by His will, gives us spiritual birth? How does he do it? How does he make the the kind of metaphysical connection between what his will is and our own desires and our own responses? He does it by the word of his truth. 
And what is that word of truth? It is the good news of the gospel. Paul would use the same terms in Ephesians 1.13. The term word of truth can be used to describe all of Scripture. And of course, the point of all of Scripture is the gospel. But in Paul, as in James, I think they're using it in this narrower sense. Friends, if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, if you have not been born again, I love the fact that you are here with us and I hope you continue to join with us. You are always welcome here. But my greatest hope for you is that you would know this same spiritual birth through the word of truth. This message, this gospel that James and Paul are referring to and Peter is referring to is the the news that even though sin, when it has fully grown, produces death, there is hope in Jesus. There is life in Jesus. And the reason sin brings death is because the Bible teaches that every single one of us is naturally born in sin. Ever since our first parents were the first ones to be lured by forbidden fruit, And succumbs to that temptation. As a result, we are born into sin and we deserve not God's reward and not his crown of life, but his punishment. And the perfect punishment of a perfect God in whom there is no evil is his righteous wrath. For every person who does not respond to his word of truth by turning away from their sin and by trusting in Christ alone for salvation, what awaits them is not the crown of life, but God's judgment in hell. My desire for you more than anything is that you would be born again through faith in Jesus. If you have not yet placed your trust in him, do so today and come and talk to me afterwards. Brothers and sisters, for those of us who have done that, here yet again is a reminder of God's unchanging, steadfast love towards us. When you feel like you are losing the battle against temptation when you feel like you're ready to crumble instead of standing fast in the midst of your trial, remember that it is a good, immutable, loving, and gracious God who brought you here in the first place. When you find yourself asking whether you are going to make it, when you are not sure whether you will be able to remain steadfast, remember that Christ is your sure and steady anchor. Not you. Do not trust in yourself and in your own abilities, but trust in Him. Lean on Him. It's because he knew this that Charles Spurgeon could say, I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me upon the rock of ages.
He trusted in God's goodness. He knew that his goodness would not change, and he understood that his only hope was knowing that it was not his ability to stand fast that saved him, but Jesus' ability to stand fast. When Jesus was tempted by the devil, he stood fast. When the crowds tried to impose their will on him, he stood fast. When it came to completing the task for which he was sent, to take on the sin of many on the cross, he stood fast. He set his face toward Jerusalem. When he faced his greatest trial the night before going to the cross, and as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, he remained steadfast. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And why did he do it? Why did Jesus stand fast through all of those trials and suffering and pain greater than any, any of us will know? James told us in verse 18 that we should be a kind of first fruits. That term is used several times throughout the New, Te- New Testament to refer to God's people who have been redeemed by Jesus. The term comes from the Old Testament practice of offering up the first of Israel's crops and flocks. And perhaps the best place for us to reflect on it from here is from Revelation 14. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. You see, the first fruits of redemption in Christ are called that because just as the original first fruits were a special possession, we who have been born by His will are also His special possession. And that is why He promises the crown of life to those who love Him. Brothers and sisters, remain steadfast. Because God is good, and He is steadfast towards you. So how can you stand fast? Look to the one who stood fast for you. Look to the one who is good to you, who has always been good to you, and will always be good to you. That is true even in the midst of all the trials you have been through, in the midst of all the trials you are going through, and in the midst of all the trials that you will go through. He is producing steadfastness in you as you stand fast. And He promises to you the crown of life at the end of it all. Will you love and trust in Him? as you stand fast. Let's pray.
Our Heavenly Father, our immortal, invisible, immutable, all-powerful, all-good, all-loving God. We praise you and we thank you because unlike us, you are not tempted to evil and there is no shadow in you, no variation due to change. Father, we pray that you would help us, that your spirit would work in us to resist temptation to stand fast, to look to Christ, the one who did so perfectly. And may we anticipate with great joy the crown of life that awaits, the one that you have promised to those who have stood the test, to those who love you, to those that you have given and granted new life by your will. God, may we trust in you as we endure in Jesus' name. Amen.